0: Welcome back to Backwoods Belief. let see, when this isn't your first time, we're four episodes in. Where you been? I'm Jeff. This is Ben, and we're here to talk about one of our favorite books in the hands of some of our least favorite people. So, uh, Ben, before we get started, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. I appreciate all the work you've put into the technological side to try to make this thing work where we can talk over.
1: Uh... <laughs> we almost had some difficulties with that today, but.
0: No doubt you came through. So uh, really what prompted this episode, we have a list of topics we want to talk about, but something on Twitter intervened. So Shane Morris, who, you know, good old Shane, not not here to criticize Shane, tweeted out this uh, glowing praise of a YouTube video by Gavin Ortland talking about C.S. Lewis's that hideous strength. And the way he tweeted about it, that being Shane, was by retweeting Jake Mador. And I immediately got sick to my stomach. I reached out to Ben and Ben said, don't do this to me. So, Ben, <laughs> if, uh, if our listeners don't immediately understand why this is a problem, uh, can you help them understand why our hair caught on fire?
1: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, a, a, great, a great way to think about this is to talk about the episode we did on the Made to Order Man, which was really just a description of one of the characters in That Hideous Strength, Mark Studeck who is like the quintessential made-to-order man until, you know, the book finishes. Um, and so when we c- talked about that and called out some of the specific names, like Jake or of people who we considered to fit this, um, this pattern, to see them then uh, endorsing or praising a book that really indicts
0: them is, uh, well, it does kind of set your hair on fire, as you said. Yeah, it crawled into my marrow and just made me sick at the at the DNA level. Um what you said is accurate. So Ortland is his own kind of problem because Ortland is the made to order man, but he's also this derivative version who basically only exists because there is an evangelical inner ring and he was born with access to it because his dad um his dad pastors a big church. So his dad is this relic from the Young, Restless, and Reformed movement that uh, I, I don't even know what's going on with Ray. At one point, he was Presbyterian, but he's also like an Anglican theologian now. Russell Moore goes to his church. He's the idiot who oh, said, really? he, Yeah, Russell Moore joined his church when he left the SBC. Huh. I yeah. had no idea. Yeah. Um. He's the guy who said that he couldn't wait for the death of the Bible Belt. Right. Know, so, the
1: Bible. I do remember that one. Yeah.
0: You know, all is the, he the one that wrote the Gentle and Lily book, or is that a different person? So there, this is this is the deal, man. There's a couple last names in evangelicalism that are the trust fund yeah. set: <laughs> the Ortlands uh, on the SBC side, the Akins, uh, Grant Gaines. These are guys who, again, they only have any kind of public life because the evangelical inner ring exists, and their big church dads birth them into it. So Ortland. Gavin may have wrote gentle and lowly. I don't know. Crossway sent my church a box full of those things and I thought about it for a long time and I mailed it back to him. Um, it could have been his oh brother, Dane. I'm not actually sure how many Ortland spawn yeah, Dane, there are. Yeah, Dane, Dane wrote gentle and lowly. Okay. 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 So Dane's the other brother. Um, so as I said, Gavin is his own kind of problem because he is a fundamentally derivative creature. from Evangelical inner ring. And... Um, I guess really the first time I really threw down with Gavin was in 2022 when critical theory was on the rise and he tweeted white supremacy is evil and it is helpful for us to say so without qualification. This should be uncontroversial within the church, but fortunately that cannot be assumed right now. So this is the quintessential made to order man. He stuck his wet finger in the air, uh, saw that yeah. it was Good to criticize the, the church-going community for this nebulous evil that he couldn't he couldn't point to anyone who was a white supremacist in any church, but he's trying to build his brand. Uh, he's building his brand on look how bad the church sucks and look how much better I am. Yeah. And so I replied to him and asked him when he first realized his conscience was so seared he could comfortably trade in denigrating the bride of Christ for Twitter likes. You can imagine that got me blocked pretty quick. But yeah. I, I want our listeners to understand, this is the kind of person we're dealing with. He desperately wants the world's approver, approval. He desperately wants the spirit of the age to kiss him with prestige, and he's quite happy to throw the church under the bus to get it. Yeah. Anything you want to add to that?
1: Uh, I mean, I I don't really know much about him other than the fact that he apparently wrote that book that I've heard of. But yeah, yeah, yeah. he he sounds like the
0: the kind of guy we've been talking about.
1: Right? Uh, he's based definitely based on that guy. your description.
0: Yeah. So then Jake Mador is praising Gavin's uh, discussion of the book. Jake is the living embodiment of the objective room from that hideous strength, right? It's to take any classical distinction that references an objective set of morals yeah. and crush it under your feet. With him, he does it with gender signaling. Um, yeah. And as you said, this is the kind of book that indicts these people, you know, with the precision of a laser. And here they are talking about it. I mean, I'll just be honest. I feel territorial. I feel like that book in their hands is what a man must feel like if his daughter makes really bad choices in her love life and ends up married to a drug addict. Yeah. Just shouldn't have this precious thing in your presence. Yeah. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah and there i mean this is this has always been a problem with cs lewis and the evangelical world is that they love to praise cs lewis i mean gavin's going to gush over cs lewis in the intro to this podcast that we're about to listen to or at least listen to portions of and um the the evangelicals love to do that but typically now this is not the case with gavin but typically that's because they've read narnia Maybe they've read Mere Christianity, but they haven't really delved into what C.S. Lewis was often writing about. They yeah. haven't thought about the consequences of the things he's saying. They haven't read him on gender and what he believes about it. Um, and just the the objective goodness of na- the natural order. Uh, and so it's really hard to hear guys like Russ Moore, who I think in one time when he posted some of his top favorite books, cited Wendell Berry and C.S. Lewis. And I'm like, oh. Uh, you feel very territorial because you're like, do you have you read anything beyond just hearing that these are the kind of people you're supposed to like? Right. Um, because they, their writings indict you. And that that's the thing we're talking about with CS Lewis and Gavin here is, uh, and Jake is his writings indict
0: you. Absolutely. So let me be real fine point about that. I, as I was listening to this nonsense, um, there were just quotes that were coming from that hideous strength or the, you know, the the nonfiction version called Abolition of Man that kept coming to my mind. And so, um, one thing I want to say up front is that if you're watching this on YouTube, this is where Gavin posted this. His channel is Truth Unites. If you want to go watch it, more power to you. But on the screen, his you know, the name that he uses for himself is Gavin Ortland PhD, and. <laughs> it is such a it's such a dead giveaway about who this guy is. Um can't can't present his own ideas. And and here's the thing, I suspect that betrays that he knows he doesn't really have much to say. So what has to be on stage every time he is is the credential that means you're supposed to listen to him. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and we'll have to talk about credentials at some point and how meaningless they are, but that's for a future episode.
0: Right, right. And, and how Big Eva is self-credentialing, and it just kind of mm-hmm. subsists on the appearance of credibility rather than actual credibility. So when I saw that, again, my hackle's already raised, but I, remember, um, uh, I remembered a passage from That Hideous Strength. I, I can't remember who the speaker is. I've pulled up a bunch of these excerpts, but um, as Mark Studdick is being brought into the uh, NICE system, and he's starting to hear some details about what they plan to do. Can't remember if it's Featherstone or who, but the topic comes up of what they want to do, and they, you know, the the idea that the bad guys are pushing is people need to be told what to think. And so, Mark's response is basically to assume that NICE is aimed at. The, uh, the general public to, to teach them. And uh, he says, you know, something to the effect of, do we start with the educated? And he gets his head bitten off. And the passage I was thinking about says this, are you fool? It's the educated reader who can be gold. All of our difficulty comes with the others. When did you meet a workman who believes the papers? He takes it for granted that they're all propaganda. He skips the leading articles. He buys his paper for the football results and the little paragraphs about girls falling out of windows and corpses found in Mayfair Flats. He is our problem. We have to recondition him. The educated public, the people who read the highbrow weeklies, don't need reconditioning. They're all right already. They'll believe anything. Gavin Portland is not the blue-collar guy who has some relationship to the natural world and therefore some inoculation against the nonsense. He's the educated public reading the highbrow weeklies, and he's already conditioned to believe the nice spiel. Yeah. Oh, so, with that in mind, um, I'm going to ask you to hit play. And Ben, I can't right. remember. Do we want to just
1: start right from the beginning, or do you have a specific clip you want to jump to right away?
0: Well, if you'll indulge me, and if our listeners will indulge me, I think at the very beginning he mentioned something about the Tim Keller Institute, and I'd like to listen to that point and then stop all right we'll start
1: from the beginning
2: here then and then go till he mentions that all right let's talk about c.s lewis a little bit i have two favorite books that i listen to over and over again both are by c.s lewis he's my favorite writer i love c.s lewis can't wait to get to heaven and talk to c.s lewis about my best books and uh you know i just can't imagine oh it'll be great um Till We Have Faces is one of them. I've already made a video about that one. By the way, I'm talking with a friend about editing, doing a book where we edit a series of things, Until We Have Faces. So I'll keep you posted on that. Uh, I'm excited about that. We just had a first planning session yesterday about that. The other is called That Hideous Strength. By the way, Until We Have Faces, I already did a video. I'll link to that in the description if you're interested in that book.
0: Such a cool book.
2: I want to explain in this video <laughs> why I think this is such a cool book and such a helpful book. Um, it's not been as well received critically and at the popular level this book is definitely seen as one of his most bizarre and kind of unwieldy books. People just don't know what to do with this. But I want to work through and just explain why I think this book is so fantastic and so helpful. Um, so I'm going to... This this will have four sections to this video, it'll be a longer video. Before I even get to explain the table of contents for this video, let me just explain why I think there's value in works of fiction like this. Um, I think that in our setting in the modern West, literature and just the arts more generally can play a really helpful role in the re-Christianization and re-enchantment of our world. This is one of my great passions in terms of apologetics, and it's an area that I'm working on right now. There's a really loud plane flying by right now, and it's shaking my office, so hopefully that won't affect the audio too much. Um, but just to explain this point, because I'm going to, I'm working on. In fact, I just finished an article that will go up for the uh, Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics in a couple of weeks. So, if you're interested in that, I right, will put you that up it there, when Bill? it comes out in my community tab on YouTube, so you can see my article. Right, so, the case, so the Tim <laughs> Keller Institute. If you don't know, um, is I just think the, you know it's that
0: kind of thing that NICE would start. <laughs> it's this self-legitimizing offshoot of the Gospel Coalition attached to Tim Keller's name. And it immediately is populated by all the worst people in evangelicalism. Now, maybe not everyone nope. there's, you know, terrible or whatever, but every name that popped up, I was like, Yeah, there's no reason those people should be representing Christ in any meaningful public setting, right?
1: Well, that's the beauty of the the cultural apologetic center or whatever it's called, is that they're not going to be representing Christ to begin with. Oh, um, yeah. they're they're just going to be um, selling, you know, left leftist social issues to the church it's it's the same thing as with the urlc they're not representing the church's issues to the world they're representing the world's issues to the church absolutely
0: and that's so well said and and lewis predicted this so precisely so you know you're, you're already going to hear or you already have heard there with like ortland a bunch of what he says comes really close to being true and i think if some of our listeners aren't as uh Tuned in to that hideous strength. They may feel like this is nitpicking, but what's going to emerge, I think eventually is that for uh, whatever appreciation Gavin feels like he has for the, uh, for the book, it's, it misses him entirely Now it's so yeah. kind of him to start off by talking about Keller because listener, if um, you're familiar with Keller at all, you know that he is famous and infamous now for his third way approach to every issue. And and Ben, I don't want to just like soapbox on this, but when I say his, his third way approach to every issue, could you sketch that out for our listeners? Yeah, so often
1: when Tim Keller with a particular issue, whether it's theological, cultural, whatever, he will present, well, there's this side and there's this side, which is usually the right wing side and left wing side. But the true Christian way is this other alternative that no one has ever considered and that's the the third wayism and usually it's basically a um it's it's either a refusal to deal with the question like in a practical way beyond the abstract theorizing about it or it's a push toward a kind of uh liberalizing left wing influence on the conservative church it's never pushing the people who are um re- rejecting christianity and scripture to move further towards a more fundamentalist approach. That, that's never the goal. It's usually the goal of, and this might sound familiar if you've been listening to what Jeff has been reading from that hideous strength. It's usually with the goal of taking the, d- the dumb country bumpkin Christian and explaining to him why he needs to support homosexuality in his schools or um, transgender
0: story hour in his libraries,
1: which I, I, I'm not saying that Kim Keller has explicitly tried to endorse those things.
0: Well, no, but, but I mean, it, you're right that whatever his alleged third way approach is always bends leftward. It's like the it's the long road around the mountain to end up where the leftist just went straight to. Yeah. And the, the reason I bring that up is because the bad guys in that hideous strength are always in the business of removing distinction. Um, they, they don't want differences between men and women they don't want differences between um, a an animal and a subject of scientific experiment so for them they want you cutting into a horse to be no different than you taking apart a uh, a model car to see how it's built they just they don't mm-hmm. want a thing to be considered in and of itself they want to collapse everything into this one singular thing so the end of distinction, we'll talk about what it is here in just a little bit, but with, with, um, different characters, they approach this in different ways. So you have this figure named Withers who cannot say anything directly. He's constantly dancing around uh, in his answers, never really committing to any position. Well, you've yeah. got this other character named fairy Har- uh, hardcastle, who is a lesbian, butch woman. Who's the head of a police department. And even by, uh, even by framing her that way, Lewis is already showing you that she is out of step yeah. with the natural order for a woman and for uh, police enforcement, right. You see that these distinctions are being collapsed even in this character. But what yeah. came to my mind when he started talking about Keller and Keller's you know third wayism comes uh, immediately to the forefront when you think about Tim Keller now this is going to be his legacy. There's this passage where Mark, who's basically an, uh, an academic, is told by the directors of NICE that he needs to start writing newspaper articles. And this assignment comes to him through Fairy Hardcastle. I'm going to read you this dialogue where they engage with one another. And you tell me what this sounds like, right? So Hardcastle tells Mark, you know, just kind of make up this article. We want it to accomplish these certain goals. You can even create facts for it. Just whatever you need to do, we want this narrative out there. So Mark says, what on earth is the point of all of this? She says, I'm telling you, Stuttick, Alcassan, who's, who's an important character in the book, is to be rehabilitated. We're going to make him into a martyr. What for? Mark wants to know the, the purpose. There you go again. You grumble about get, being given nothing to do. And as soon as I suggest a bit of real work, you expect to have the whole plan of campaign told you before you do it. That's not the way we go on here at the Institute. The great thing is to do what you're told. You don't seem to realize what we are. We're an army. Anyway, said Mark, I didn't come here to write newspaper articles if I'd had, I'd want to know a good deal more about the politics of the NICE before I went for that sort of thing. Haven't you been told that it's strictly non-political? Hardcastle replied. I've been told so many things that I don't know whether I'm on my head or my heels, said Mark. But I don't see how one's going to start a newspaper stunt without being political. Is it left or right papers that are going to print all this rot about alcasan So he asked, is it leftist or rightist papers that are going to run the articles? Because Aware media has a political bias, and he asks about which political bias is going to be our instrument. Yeah. Hardcastle's reply is both, honey, both. Don't you understand anything? Isn't it absolutely essential to keep a fierce left and a fierce right both on their toes and each terrified of each other? That's how we get things done. Of course we're non-political. The real power always is. And man, I'm telling you, that could come right out of Tim Keller's mouth if, you know, he wouldn't be bold enough to say, I want the left and the right constantly fighting. He's maybe not thinking about that, but he's doing that thing. I am non-political. I'm above this. I'm neither left nor right. I'm going to position yeah. myself in this third place. And he's, he's giving the perspective of the NICE uh, every time he's doing it. And of course, Ortland works yeah. for the center that bears his name.
1: Yeah, and <clears throat> that's a, a common thing that we see in the the sort of um, the elite guys on the platform is they're above every situation looking down upon, you know, the, the warring masses, and they have a word from on high of how this fight is um, ridiculous or doesn't matter, and there's actually a better way that I can show you.
0: Yep. Yep. And they're above it, right? They transcend it. They're not there with the, uh, you know, to go back to the earlier quote, uh, you know, the pipe fitter who's a blue collar dude who is possibly not going to be able to continue working for this mega construction corporation unless he you know, affirms the goodness of transgenderism. That's not where they're at. Christian faithfulness isn't found in taking a stand that might cost you your job. Christian faithfulness is finding a, a grandiose way to do nothing that costs you anything you value. Right. The people pulling the strings behind that are the sort of people who run NICE and say, "Eh, we're going to we're going to play it either left nor right because that's what real power, real social, cause that's what NICE is all about. Real social reengineering requires you yeah. kind of have to work. You think
1: it. about the um. It's been oh man, it's been a year, a, a couple of years, I think now since I've read that hideous strength. I need to get back into it, but I think about the kind of the the levels of hierarchy. In the NIC, where you had, um, was it kind of Featherstone at the top?
0: So there's Featherstone, Featherstone, Featherstone. there's Withers. Featherstone. And I think but above them is Alcatraz. is right?
1: kind of the guy who actually knows what they're doing. Okay. Like he's in on the secret, right? Is that, I can't remember which characters. I
0: think both um, he and are Withers are because the macrobes alter both of them. I think both of them. Okay. Okay.
1: Yeah, so you have those guys who are, like, are in on the joke. They know what's happening. They know what they're doing. Then you have the kind of the the second tier higher-ups, like um, probably Fairy Hardcastle would be an example of this, uh, who are sort of... Like, there's there's a series of inner rings, and as you move up further and further, you find out more about what's actually happening. And I think a lot of the guys in um, the evangelical world are not very high up on that list. They're the guys... At, what is it? Bracton College. Yeah, Bracton. Right. Right outside the wood. They're the. Yeah, they're the guys who work there who are, you know, like Mark in the beginning, a part of these little groups who are trying to. I think they're what, working to sell off some of
0: the property. That's right. It's glorious. Ancient they're they're wood those guys. That dates back to King yeah. Arthur. They hey, Just get rid of that. Mow yeah. it down. We need land to build our new advanced scientific facility on.
1: Yeah, they're those guys. They they have no idea what the like what the actual plan is. They're just you know children running around and part of secret groups that they feel really uh, included in, and so they you know sell their souls and sacrifice their principles to be a part of these inner groups, and then move up into further and further higher inner groups by selling off more of who they are. And and, and I think a lot of the guys. That we're talking about are pretty low on that tier. I think a guy like Tim Keller, he's—I don't think he's at the top. I think there's somebody who funds Tim Keller, sure. but he, he's definitely not one of the the entry level guys. Like he knows what he's doing.
0: He's on his way to becoming Withers, who is ethereal yeah. and uh, ghost-like. It's great that you take it to these. You know, most of these guys uh, on the front lines are just inner ring applicants. Because this conversation with Hardcastle goes on, and just listen to this, uh, you know, how it cuts to the inner ring. So Art responds to that whole, you know, where the real power is, neither right nor left. He says, this is all very interesting, but it has nothing to do with me. I don't want to become a journalist at all. And if I did, I should like to be an honest journalist. Very well, (laughs) said Miss Hardcastle. All you'll do is help ruin this country and perhaps the human race, besides dishing your own career. And the confidential tone in which she had been speaking up till now had disappeared. And there was a threatening finality in her voice. A citizen, an honest man, which had been awakened in Mark by the conversation, quailed a little. His other and far stronger self, a self that was anxious at all costs not to be placed among the outsiders, leaped up, fully alarmed. Yeah. There's the inner ring. Man. Drawing Mark Studdock in. Do what we say. Yeah. Otherwise you won't be part of the cool kid club. So yeah so um you know ben um i really don't have much to say until we get down to about 17 minutes into the, the presentation he kind of goes through the characters and, and whatnot then and he starts talking about what lewis is doing in the okay. book and so the next time stamp i have is at 17 minutes and 33 seconds or sorry 17 minutes and 13 seconds Could you hop us that way yep yep
2: uh All right, and we're ready to go. All right. You'll you'll see why what the animals are doing there if you read the book. There's a bear that like mauls several of the evil characters. And this really, people don't know what to do with this. Um, Rowan Williams, if you know him, he's a theologian. He wrote on this topic. And he says, over the top, I think, is the only expression one can use for this. I think it's when the elephant breaks loose and comes into the dining room and begins trampling people to death that I feel something has snapped in the authorial psyche. (laughs) So it is, I mean, you know, it's a. ah. here's what I would say. It's a strange book for sure, but the strange features do serve a purpose. They're not random. The dark mood is because basically, and there's a book by a scholar named Schwartz. The title is C.S. Lewis on the Final Frontier. He basically shows that Lewis was copying Charles Williams' style. And Charles Williams' style, in turn, was really influenced by 18th century gothic romance books <laughs> so that's kind of weird but um because you know charles williams is one of the inklings kind of a kind of an interesting person but uh it, it looks like lewis was imitating his style um so you know that mood was deliberately chosen by let's, Lewis. Let's pause and of a, a point in. in terms of the overall plot right. um another thing so listener it, you know if this
0: is spoilers, spoilers. There's a, there's a scene where the bad guys get what's coming to them by a bunch of animals coming in, and acting like wild animals who have humans in their sights. Is that, um, is that mm-hmm. accurate and vague enough, Ben? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and in fact, I don't think you need to be vague. Um, we we can put a spoiler alert at the beginning of the episode or something, but, uh, I think, I think it's important. We actually talk about this, it's especially what's happening with these animals. And the other things that happen in the conclusion, um, which I think he mentions, but it's important because the fact that he's acting like it's really strange and out of character for the book. Now, he does he does say that they're important for a reason, but the fact that he's kind of... Um,
0: uh, he's sympathetic to Rowan like, Williams.
1: Yeah, right, like acting like, well, yeah, that's true. It is kind of weird that the animals all attack at the end of the book. Um, it's not weird. If you understand the book.
0: Exactly.
1: Like that's the, that's the only proper conclusion to the story. If you know what the story is about.
0: Yes. And so that is specifically why I wanted to highlight this section. It's the first real glimpse you get that Gavin has no idea what's actually going on in this book. He gets close a couple times. Um, yeah. He, he talks about. Yeah, I do want to say that.
1: For real quick, just for somebody who goes back and listens to this entire episode, not everything Gavin says in this about that hideous strength is wrong. He he clearly appreciates some really good things about it, but he does in a large way miss huge portions of what the,
0: the book is about. And
1: if he did see them, it would
0: really harm his own work. Right, right. And it would it would probably ruin his friendship with Jake Mador. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I have kind of queued up later to say much more about this, but. You know, I mentioned earlier that at NICE, experimenting on an animal was not supposed to be seen as any kind of big deal. And that was really important in Lewis's own life. He saw the practice of evisceration of animals for scientific pursuits as something bordering on very immoral behavior. It was fashionable uh, in elite circles in that day. It um, was something he'd spotted and said, I don't think we should be as comfortable with this. So it shows up in NICE. referencing is where nature reasserts herself over and against this cold materialism that reduces life down to a subject of study and inquiry apart from any values. It's glorious, right? Um, Animals come back in and nature reasserts herself. Now the end of the book is a whole bunch of that, but this is, you know, when you're, when you're reading a story with bad guys in it, when you're, you're yearning for them to get what's coming to them, dinner at Bellberry is one of the most satisfying uh, passages you're ever going to read right <laughs> yeah and, and there's gavin be like yeah it's weird and it's just bizarre for me to see him as a guy who again he has to kind of live on this idea that because he wrote a dissertation that he defended somewhere he has credibility he has to say oh well this is lewis working in the charles william motif as if this is a matter of aesthetics
1: right right now, it is a matter of aesthetics, but that's not the point. Yes. It's not just that C.S. Lewis is trying to c- copy Charles Williams' style. He's also making a point about nature and the cold machinery of the NICE and that, you know, the the order of nature is going to, as you said, reassert itself and um, be put back into its proper place.
0: Right. So from there, if we can let it play just a little bit more, um, I want to get to this point. It's around 18 minutes where Gavin describes uh, that hideous strength as a weird book. And I I can't remember if a quote from George Orwell shows up between where we are now and, and the section I'm looking for, but if you can let it run till around the 18 minute mark, I think, um, I think there's some good stuff to talk about. Okay.
2: In this book and the Arthurian legend plays a key part of the book, but, there's reasons for these things. So Lewis began the space trilogy because of an agreement with his friend J.R.R. Tolkien, that basically they wanted to write the books they wanted to write, and no one else was writing. So Lewis was assigned to write a space travel story, which became Out of the Silent Planet, the first book in this trilogy. And Tolkien was assigned to write a time travel story, which he tried to with a book called The Lost Road, but it didn't get finished. And so people think that, you know, Lewis is basically <sighs> oh making goodness. up for his friend's f- can f- can failure awesome? to complete his end of the bargain. So he put time travel in. But beyond that, as we we'll oh, see, and, there's and a purpose even, oh, to that. Oh,
0: goodness. What were you laughing about there? Because I was too, and I'm just curious if we have the same understanding.
1: Um, that the only reason Arthur is in this book is because CS Lewis needed to make up for Tolkien's failure to write a time travel story as though <laughs> he just got done talking Tolkien's about though, Charles Williams. Yeah. As though there's not a specific reason.
0: Uh, oh, so, and this is crazy. And listen, I know that some of this is inside baseball. Lewis is a son of Britain. Uh, Lewis wants a good King for Britain to be governed by. Um, there was no yeah. chance that Arthur wasn't going to show up in a book about what should happen to England if C.S. Lewis is writing it. Did you also hear him say yeah. time travel? Yeah. So he, he in, yeah. The, in the video, he talks about Merlin as if Merlin time travels. Merlin is raised from the dead, isn't he?
1: Oh, man, it's been so long. I can't remember where he comes from.
0: I could have sworn that Merlin was and, resurrected. And
1: Merlin in Arthurian legend lives a weird life anyway doesn't he like live his life backwards or is that just from more modern readings of arthur i can't yeah i'm not sure
0: maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong on that but i i swear i I shouldn't swear i am strongly (laughs) persuaded that the image of merlin being introduced back into the narrative has him arising from the dirt um it could be i think
1: yeah isn't that the reason um that they want to buy the plot of land to begin with is that his grave is yes Yes. That's where he's buried. Yeah. 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 I think you're right. So about I'm
0: that. like, what, in what way does time travel impact this, this story? But, you know, the, the yeah. greater, the greater issue is that like, dude, you don't understand why Arthur is here.
1: Yeah. One of my favorite passages from the book, and it's Merlin, not Arthur, who's there. But one of my favorite passages from the book is um, when uh, Ransom is talking to Merlin and Merlin's trying to figure out, okay, where do we go from here? And he asks, you know, who are the who are the, the good kings we can go to, the good Christian kings? And Ransom's like, there are not. He's like, well, aren't there, who's the emperor? Can we go to him? Lewis is like, there's, there's no emperor. Or Ransom, although it is basically Lewis. Like, there's, there's no emperor. And he's like, well, maybe we can go to one of the, the righteous pagans. Um, and I won't, you know, try to paraphrase the whole quote, but it, it is a great picture of the... Um, the bringing in of the Arthurian legend is not just because he needed a time travel element. There's a real literary thematic um, parallel that's being, that's taking place. So Merlin and uh, Arthur and, um, Oh, what's, what's he say at the end of that, that section, you know, the section I'm referencing,
0: I remember them kind of game planning together and I know what role ransom plays. In the, you know, in the story. Listener, I want to put this in front of you if this is new to you. So that hideous strength is a fictionalized, and, and Orlin gets this right, it's a fictionalized presentation of the material that Lewis wrote in his book, The Abolition of Man. If you haven't read The Abolition of Man, I would say read it before you read That Hideous Strength so you'll have a full-orbed understanding of it. You've heard us reference already a couple times the idea of a natural order. And in The Abolition of Man... Lewis gives the natural order a name that he draws uh, and borrows from the East. He calls it the Tao. And the Tao, I'm going to read to you from the abolition of man. The Tao is not just the way things ought to be, although that is true, but it is the way things are. In the abolition of man, uh, Lewis understands, I think rightly, that modernism is doing everything it can to push the Tao out of the life of human beings. And I think that I think that project is still ongoing. It's the project NICE takes up, and I think it's what's happening in our own day. So I'm going to give you a definition of the Tao that I hope will help you understand what Lewis wants to do here. And then you just kind of marvel at how Gavin Portland misses this. So this is what Lewis says about the Tao in The Abolition of Man. He says, it is the doctrine of objective value belief that certain attitudes are really true and others really false to the kind of thing the universe is and the kind of things we are. Those who know the Tao can, uh, can hold that to call children delightful or old men venerable. is not simply to record a psychological fact about our own parental or filial emotions at the moment, but to recognize a quality which demands a certain response from us whether we make it or not. I myself, this is Lewis speaking autobiographically, I myself do not enjoy the society of small children. Because I speak from within the Tao, I recognize this as a defect in myself. Just as a man may have to recognize that he is tone deaf or colorblind, because our approvals and disapprovals are thus recognitions of objective value or responses to an objective order, therefore emotional states can be in harmony with reason, When we feel liking for that which ought to be approved, or out of harmony with reason, when we perceive that liking is due but cannot feel it. No emotion is, in itself, a judgment. In that sense, all emotions and sentiments are illogical, but they can be reasonable or unreasonable as they conform to reason or fail to conform. The heart never takes the place of the head, but it can and should obey it. So, Lewis here is a deeply medieval person. He realizes there's an order to the cosmos. He calls it the Tao. He recognizes that we have an obligation to honor it and conform ourselves to it. And the entire fictional narrative of that hideous strength is two contrasting ways of living. It is the Institute of NICE doing everything they can to throw off the Tao. And that is set in contrast with Ransom Society at St. Anne's that is doing everything they can to live within the Tao as faithfully as possible. You have one uh, group, the, the NICE, producing subhuman monsters, and you have St. Anne's through conforming to the Tao. I would use the language of the natural law, um, who God himself is yeah. as objective reality. They are producing humans, and so those who go to nice become less human those who come to St. Anne's become more human because this is the way we can form rightly to our creator. Ben, jump back in.
1: Well, uh, you, you sort of moved on from the point I was going to make, but I was, I was simply pointing out, excuse me, I was pointing out that, you know, the the use of Arthur and Merlin isn't just, um, you know, a, like a challenge that C.S. Lewis gave himself to try to use these figures but is an an intentional appropriation of, you know, the, the, Uh the the Britain myths because of the, the things that Arthur and Merlin and all of those characters, you know, the whole matter of Britain stuff, all of the, the virtues that they ascribe. C.S. Lewis is um, wanting to bring those into the story because for the very reason you said, because when you become more human, you um, uh, you live out those virtues.
0: Right. And so Arthur is um, the Tao incarnate in the political realm of Britain. Lewis sees a good king as uh, the natural order yeah. under which Britain is to be governed. And so Arthur has to come back, right, as... I think Lewis says, you know, good Britain still toast in pubs today. Arthur has to come back because the natural order of things is going to reassert itself. And again, everywhere you look in that hideous strength, the natural order is presenting itself over and against its human instinct to, de- de- enchan- uh, to remove enchantment, to demysticize everything and reduce everything down to what we would call a secular scientific analysis. Uh, Lewis has this concept of Donegality, that there is a way to know the essential characteristics of a place. And when you hit upon a thing uh, that is essential to that area, you have discovered it's Donegality. So Arthur is a Donegal. Uh, it, Arthur is full of Donegality when it comes to Britain. He is appropriately of that place, and that place should know and participate in him as king. And so, um, it's not time travel. It's not even Charles Williams, although he, uh, Lewis may, uh, obviously there, there's certain, yeah, there certainly is some influence from Charles Williams. Um, yeah. And Lewis loved him one, you know, thought he was the greatest writer. I mean, clearly he loved him, but that's so adjacent to what Lewis is actually doing in the book. So oh, Ben, I've got to go do some other stuff. We've kind of run out of time. Can we put a bow here and say maybe part one and come back to it, uh, at a later time? Oh man. <laughs>
1: Yes, we'll we'll definitely have to do a part two to this because we made, what, two clips in? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we scratched the surface. All right. Well, hey, everyone, thank you for listening to this. Um, And I just want to say as a closing, this is a part one. So we've been very critical of Gavin. And as we've said before, this podcast is not just about calling people out and being negative all the time. So look for in part two or even maybe part three, depending on how long we want to talk about this stuff. Um, we're, we're going to be talking about our positive vision of that hideous strength and abolition of man, too. I think that's safe to say, right, Jeff?
0: Yeah, and the next timestamp I have marked is Portland's um, idea of the main idea of the book. I don't think he gets it quite right, but the note I wrote is there's some good analysis here. And so, again, he gets close to some some good things.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, All right. So uh, if you would like to follow us on Twitter, social media, um, you can follow at Backwoods Belief or my own account is Bendel Wary at Bendel Wary. Uh, Yours is what at merely Jay Wright. Uh, You can do that. We would really appreciate if you shared the podcast and left us a rating or a review. That would be very helpful just to, to get more people listening.
0: I much appreciate it for y'all pressing play on this. I hope it's not too inside baseball or niche. Um, I think if if hang with us, you'll come away not just with a better understanding of Lewis, but better appreciation of ideas he brings to the table that everyone should understand. And, and I would say I embrace. Absolutely. All right. Thanks for listening.